Great. Well, welcome to our second of our PBI classes, our spring semester, so to speak, here. And uh, this is the one and only class, as you know, for our spring course. And uh, I had the privilege of leading this class the next four weeks, and I'm excited about what we're going to do, what he's going to deposit into our hearts as we speak about the issue of finances. Financial wisdom for worrisome times. That is our topic for the next four weeks. And uh, I just want to say as we begin this morning, I just, uh, this, this evening, I feel very uh, unqualified tonight uh, to speak on this topic. Um, I am no financial expert. I am a learner like you are as it comes to handling finances. I am not a certified financial planner nor accountant. Many of you would have just as much if not more knowledge in areas of credit card, investments, mortgages, etc. But I do come as one this morning who has a measure of faith that God wants us to be stewards that glorify Him in the area of financial management. And that I do have faith for. And that is a passion of mine to be a steward what God has entrusted to us. But I am a little perplexed that, uh, at least here at Palm Vista, I've been asked to do this, and I don't know how it came about, but kind of been known as the money guy, and that's nothing that I wanted to, I never sought that role, and I certainly haven't tonight, and I am just, I want you to hear that, I'm grateful that you're here tonight, that you would take a Thursday night, out of your time, out of your week, following a Wednesday home group evening to be here, and that really does serve me, and uh, I just want to ask for God's blessing, this morning, that he would reward the time that you've allocated this evening. That these words would be words that would penetrate deeply and affect the head and the heart and the pocketbook. So let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for setting aside this time this evening. And I just summon, I need your help this evening to communicate the so many things that are on my heart that you are teaching me in the area of finances. Help me be faithful. Help me to allow your word to speak tonight. That I would not get in the way. That's a big deal to proclaim it, illustrate it well, apply it. Holy Spirit, would you just do? Do the rest, Lord. Apply to the hearts of those who are here. We want to please you in this area of finances. We want to know your heart when it comes to the area of money and our management of it. So Lord, help us tonight. Help us in our weakness. We pray. We ask for your grace now. Amen. Amen. All right, well, for the next four weeks, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about finances. And tonight, we're laying the groundwork this evening. We're laying the groundwork, the theological foundation for all that's going to come in the next three weeks. So tonight, we're going to do some pretty heavy lifting. We're going to do some theology tonight. I want you to hang with me here. This is important. This is foundational to everything that's going to come from this evening forward. Um, but to give you an idea of what to look forward to in the weeks ahead, next week we're going to narrow it down a little bit, our perspective and our application. We'll be looking at the area of debt, both unsecured and secured debt, particularly the area of credit card debt. It's an area that's close to my heart, and it's an area I think we need to address personally and as a church, as a culture that is, as well. And the third week, we're going to take a look at the area of giving and saving. And then the last week, we're going to allocate all of our time to looking at developing a budget. 
how to live in a budget. There's much more we can do, but as I look through the material, I think these are some of the things that are most germane to all of us here, no matter if you have a little money or a lot. So that's where we're going. But if we miss this evening, we miss all that's going to follow. Um, this is going to be empty platitudes. I want you to hear scripture this evening. So we're going to spend a lot of time in scripture for that very reason. I also want to acknowledge some of the sources that I'm using as well. I'll point that out each evening. We have a class, but really for this course and for this evening, there's two resources that have been invaluable as I've done some work and study in this area. Number one, it's a book by Craig Bloomberg. It's a biblical theology called Neither Poverty Nor Riches. Craig Bloomberg walks you through as a theologian all that the Bible has to say from Genesis to Revelation on the topic of wealth possessions, and money. You may find it somewhat technical, perhaps a little dry at times. It is a theology, but in it, it's gold. And it's worth mining. I spent a lot of time going through the Bible with the help of this handbook by Craig Bloomberg. So, great book. But I would say in terms of for all of us, probably the granddaddy, my Mac favorite right here, has to be Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. I'm going to quote from this quite a bit this evening. Immensely helpful, biblical, and very practical. And this to me is a, a must for any library, any steward of God's money. This is a book that I would want you to have. I couldn't encourage you strongly enough to purchase the Young Habits. So I'm going to be drawing upon Randy Alcorn quite a bit tonight as well as in our coursework. There are many others, and I will share those with you as the course progresses. But I want to share those two sources with you that little I have to say is original tonight. I'll have a few maybe original anecdotes, a few twists and turns. But for the most part, I'm really looking at these men and theologians and setting the word for myself and simply just trying to apply it to my own life and sharing that with you. Great. Well, the title, as I mentioned, for a course, actually was a term by Alpino, uh, Financial wisdom for worrisome times. And I have to tell you this evening that we in America, as well as globally, are in what we call a recession. It is worrisome times. If you've lost your home, you know that. If you've lost your job in this last year, you know that. If you have lost most of your retirement, your 401k that was invested in stocks, you know that, humanly speaking, it is worrisome times. Or perhaps you haven't been here and suffered much loss personally, but you know many, these are friends or family members who have. And they're hurting this morning. They're hurting this evening, excuse me. They're hurting right now. They're feeling the pinch. I want to not make light of that in this course this evening, but I also want to pose this question. Could this recession could these quote worrisome times be a gift from God could it be this could it be a gift of God in disguise perhaps you might not have been at this class if we would have held it two years ago or even a year ago perhaps when you were feeling a little more confident about your retirements perhaps when you were feeling a little more confident or secure about your job perhaps when the housing market was still in its boom. You were feeling pretty good, weren't you? Your house is growing, right? In equity, things look pretty rosy. You might not have been here, but you are here. I'm so glad you are here this evening, perhaps because you felt the pinch. 
you fling a loss personally. I believe that is a gift from God as well. I love this quote from John Piper. He says, No one ever said that they learned their deepest lessons of life or had their sweetest encounters with God on sunny days. People go deep with God when the drought comes. And it's so true. Financially, the drought has come to America and perhaps to you personally. And perhaps you're seeing your, Jesus term, in quotes, relative poverty compared to perhaps what you once had or what you once thought you had. And you're feeling it. But that too may be a gift as well. See, God uses the material to reveal the moral. He uses your possessions and your wealth to reveal your heart. And I believe God is doing that in our midst. Yes, even in our church. Even during these, quote, worrisome times. It's interesting that when Christ is on earth, he spoke much about money and wealth and possessions. And he made this curious statement on the Sermon on the Mount, found in Luke 6. And you don't have to turn. I'm going to quote many scriptures. I believe most of these are in your notes, the references at least. But he said this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We don't use to put those two words together, do we? Blessed, meaning happy, and the poor. I don't think he's speaking just about those who are materially poor. I think those who are aware of their own spiritual poverty as well. Those who are poor in spirit. But God uses often the material aspect of our lives or the withdrawal of riches to show us our need for Him. To shake us out of our self-sufficient mode and to show us our real poverty. And God says, blessed, happy are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He goes on in Luke and says this, Luke 6, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich. We don't need to put those two words together, do we? Woe and rich. Wait, no, 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 no. Woe to the poor. <laughs> blessed to the rich. That's not what Christ said. Blessed are the poor. Woe to the rich. Warning. Danger. What's the danger? So often, it's pride and self-sufficiency for those who are rich. Kent Hughes, I have a quote in a note from his book, Set Apart, says this. Clearly, Jesus viewed wealth as a spiritual disadvantage because of the pride and self-sufficiency it engenders. From beginning to end, Jesus views wealth as a spiritual handicap. He views wealth as a spiritual handicap. What Ken is saying here, and I think what the Bible is saying, is not that money itself is a handicap, or that money itself is inherently evil. It's not. I would cite Wayne Grudem, who says that money is not even just neutral. Money is good. Money is a medium of exchange. Money helps us subdue the earth. Money helps us steward what God has given us. It allows us to exchange that which we produce, goods and services, in trade with others in the marketplace. Money is good. It assigns a value to that thing which we produce. It allows us to exchange it for other things. Thank God we don't live in a barter community today, that we have money. Money is good. We're not vilifying money in this course. Nor are we lifting up the poor and saying, 
that to be poor is inherently good. To be poor is not inherently good any more than to be rich is inherently good. You see? But wealth does tempt us in unique ways. In this area of pride, arrogance, and self-sufficiency. You see, I believe that prosperity can so easily obscure the truth. The truth of what? The truth about wealth? The truth about our home and where our home lies. Money and wealth can obscure the truth. So in that sense, I thank God. I can't thank God even for the recession. If through the recession, God brings clarity to our own hearts and gives us a more biblical understanding of wealth and money and how we should view it. So we're going to talk about that truth today in the next few weeks that's so easily obscured by wealth and money. We're going to be talking about theology. We're going to go through biblical theology tonight. But you may say, well, Corey, I don't have much wealth. I have very little of it. Just give me strategies. I want a game plan. Don't give me more theology. I want specifics. Well, we're going to get there, okay? But let's not rush there, all right? Second of all, I'd say, if you feel that way, you are a lot wealthier than you may think or realize. And lastly, before you can properly handle your money, whether it's $2 or $2 million, you need to know to whom the money belongs. You need to know what the Bible has to say about money. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the truth of wealth and money in this course. We're going to really liken it to a three-legged stool. My parents recently moved and they were downsizing their home and they gave me this stool that I had as a little kid. A little short stool, about yay high, that was sitting here on the table. Uh, made of at least the colors of mahogany. I don't know if it's mahogany wood, but it's pure wood. It is a sturdy little stool with three legs. Even today, as a grown adult, I can stand upon this stool. I want to give you tonight a stool with three legs of truth that you can stand upon no matter if it's a recession or a boom. And as you stand on the stool, you're going to look out and beyond what others may not be able to see in our culture. We're going to give you the truth, these three-legged, this three-legged stool this evening. So what are those three legs? Well, it's in your notes. Number one, the first leg is our treasure is found in Christ. We're going to spend a little time there. Leg number two, our home is in heaven. Just note about its first two legs. Actually, I've got one of the third as well. The third leg, we are stewards of what God owns. Going back to the first leg, our treasure is found in Christ. I believe if we get this truth down in our hearts, it will speak to and inform our thoughts and our practice as it comes to debt. We're going to talk about debt next week. But we get this first leg of the stool down, this truth, it's going to speak to that area of debt. In fact, the propensity to go into debt. If we truly believe that our treasure is found not on earth, but in Christ. Look at the second leg. Our home is in heaven. I believe this area speaks not exclusively, but in a major way to the area of giving. Our conviction and ability to release the money that God has entrusted in us stands much in the second leg. That our home is not here on earth, but our home is in heaven. Once again, these truths are immensely practical. Third truth, third leg, we are stewards of what God owns. I believe this leg is going to speak to our need for a budget, the need to spend wisely, to save wisely, 
to invest wisely as stewards of God's resources. So this theology is very much a practical theology as well. So with that in mind, let's look at our first leg of the stool. Our treasure is not found on earth, but in Christ. We're going to think hard and biblically about this point. I believe if we do so, it's going to reap fruit. We're going to reap fruit. Abundant, ripe, succulent fruits, if we understand this point correctly. And the reason I'm going to spend probably the majority of the time in this first leg is that I think that as Americans, particularly as evangelicals, we often think very casually and uncritically about the area of money and wealth. Well, I think we are much too casual at equating money with blessing. If I have money, I'm blessed. I want to challenge that notion a little bit. It is so prominent, even in our thinking. And we don't even realize that we have adopted that. And I think we've become a little too cozy with that, equating blessing with money. I think there's a warning to be found in Scripture. And I hope for the theology we're going to go through is going to clear that up for us as well. I want to read an excerpt from Randy Alcorn, who sums this issue up well. He gives a scenario of two men, one American and one Chinese. And he says this. Starting with the American first. In America, a sharp-looking businessman stands up at a luncheon to give his testimony. Before I knew Christ, I had nothing. My business was in bankruptcy. My health was ruined. I lost the respect of the community, and I almost lost my family. Then I accepted Christ. He took me out of bankruptcy, and now my business has tripled its profits. My blood pressure has dropped to normal, and I feel better than I've felt in years. Best of all, my wife and children have come back, and we're family again. God is good. Praise the Lord. In China, a disheveled former university professor gives his testimony. Before I met Christ, I had everything. I made a large salary, lived in a nice house, enjoyed good health, was highly respected for my credentials and profession, and had a good marriage and a beautiful son. Then I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord. As a result, I lost my post at the university lost my beautiful house and car, and spent five years in prison. Now I work for a subsistence wage at a factory. I live with pain in my neck, which is broken in prison. My wife rejected me because of my conversion. She took my son away, and I haven't seen him for ten years. But God is good, and I praise him for his faithfulness. Both men are sincere Christians. One gives thanks because of what he's gained. The other gives thanks in spite of what he's lost. Material blessings, Randy Alcorn says, and restored families are definitely worth being thankful for. The brother in China would be grateful to have them again. Indeed, he gives heartfelt thanks each day for the little he does have. And while the American brother is certainly right to give thanks, and he is, he and the rest of us must be careful to sort out how much of what he experienced is part of the gospel and how much is not. Listen to this. For any gospel that is more true in America than in China is not the true gospel. 
three friends need to do the hard work of sorting out what is the gospel and what is not the gospel. Biblically as it pertains to money, wealth, and finances. And I'll admit, this can be difficult. It is difficult. I put in your notes the question, are you blessed, in quotes, are you blessed with earthly treasure? And I put in parentheses, well, it depends. What does it depend on? Look at this quote again from Randy Alcorn in the notes. Money makes a good servant to those who have the right master, but it makes a terrible master itself. See, for those whose money is their master, money is anything but a blessing. It depends. What does it depend on? It depends on your heart and who your master is. Let's not be too quick to ascribe blessing to all financial gain. It does depend upon the heart. But furthermore, there's an area of uncomfortability as well when we speak about being blessed in financial terms. Once again, I don't deny that God can give you money and that can be a gift and a blessing. But let's be careful there as well. I think there's an implication when we always, always communicate blessing, a raise, a bonus, more money, a bigger house with the blessing of God. There's an implication there when we state that, even when we think that. But here's the implication that those who don't have as much money are somehow less blessed by God or perhaps even less spiritually mature, perhaps even spiritually inferior because they have less. Their business is less successful. Their house is smaller. Their sitting account is small. Oh, we must be careful. <coughs> A quote from Kent Hughes, who I quoted earlier as well. He says, wealth deludes people into Imaging, or imagining, is probably what it means there, that they are of superior value. I have more money than other people, therefore I am better. Now I know you guys, you probably would never say that. Oh, let's be honest. We can think that. Can we not? Another quote from Ken Hughes. Wealth can create an illusion of character and originality. Wealth can create an illusion of character and originality. Well, he must have more character. She must have more character. Why? Well, look at the dress. Look at the money they have. Look at the success of their business. Oh, don't be fooled. They may be good stewards. That is true. I'm not denying that. But let's be careful there as well. Or we think they must have more faith than I do because they have more, materially speaking. Who's thinking left unchecked can affirm what we call the prosperity gospel or the prosperity doctrine. It can lead to or affirm what's otherwise known as the health and wealth gospel. What is the health and wealth gospel? What is the prosperity gospel? It's basically this. If you have faith, if you have faith that all the riches of God's kingdom can be yours here, now, on this earth. All you got to do is name that claim in prayer. Lord, I got faith. That car is mine. That house is mine. If you got faith, God is going to, quote, bless you. I'm not worried that anyone here would be verbally espousing a health and wealth or prosperity doctrine. But here's my concern. That we too can fall prey to such thinking. 
perhaps in a little more subtle way. Perhaps in a way that would even require less faith. You see, we don't necessarily say in prayer, name and claim it. We just do it with our credit cards. I want it. I deserve it. I'm going to get it. I'd rather have you claim that in prayer than put it on a credit card if you can't afford it. But we can do the same thing. Name and claim it. Now, once again, we're not saying this verbally to other people. We're saying it. You know what? I'm working hard. Diligent unto the Lord. I'm giving to the church. I'm tithing. I deserve this. I know I can't necessarily afford it, but I deserve it. Yeah, I, you know, plus, I mean, listen, you know, a neighbor, my, my, one of my homeroom members, yeah, they got that too, you know? I mean, it's not as faith as they did, you know? I've been a vegan, I've been a good girl, I've been a good girl. So we charge it. We name it and we claim it in a piece of plastic, even though we can't afford it. In that way, are we any different? And those who espouse a prosperity doctrine. Oh, let's not be fooled. We too can do the same thing. We can fail to see that money and all it can buy is not our treasure. It's not a reward. Who is our treasure? It is Christ. But I want to convince you of that as much as I can through the Word of God this evening. Christ, not material wealth, our money is to be our treasure, our blessing, and our reward. But to understand this, we must go back to the Old Testament and understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, it is clear that God gave material wealth. He did. He gave it to the patriarchs. He gave it to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He gave it to the kings of Israel. He gave it to those who were righteous and obedient. It's working with the very fabric, the very DNA of the covenant itself, of God's people in the Old Testament. We read of Abraham, Genesis 12, too. God speaking to Abraham, who he called. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As the Bible unfolds like this blessing he's referring to. I'll make your name great. I will give you children, descendants, from which eventually will come the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King, Jesus. And I will give you land as well. We see also that this land also includes a bevy of different wealth and riches. We read just in the next chapter, chapter 13 in Genesis. It says, So Abraham went out from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abraham, verse 3, was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. It is evident that God blessed Abraham as part of his unilateral covenant with Abraham and the people of God. When we got this blessing, materially speaking, the book of Job, right? We see how rich Job was. God took it away, but in the end, oh, he gave back to righteous Job twice over, twofold. We read in Job 42, verse 10 and following. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. 
And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had a car for every day of the month in his fleets. This man was wealthy. He was blessed by God. We see this in the very covenant he made with his people, not just to the patriarchs, to Job, but to all those who are righteous. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that if you are obedient to my covenants, I will give you crops, I will give you livestock, I will give you children. He says this in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 28. I'm going to slow down here and read this long passage, but I want you to hear it. We're going somewhere with this theology. Okay, this is biblical, biblical theology. Got to understand the old covenant to understand the new covenant and its fulfillment, okay? Deuteronomy 28.1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall be you in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. And the fruit of your ground. And the fruit of your cattle. The increase of your herds. And of the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 8. The Lord will command the blessing on you. In your barns. And all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land. That the Lord your God has given you. Verse 11. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Friends, that is a picture of prosperity to all those who obey God. In the Old Testament, material blessing and wealth was part of his covenant arrangement with his people. God's favor was shown to his people through material blessings and through peace with their enemies. Alright? Or victory over their enemies. In fact, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God's favor and pleasure is shown. How? By either giving material blessing and peace or withdrawing material blessing and peace according to the faithfulness to God's law and commands. That is the Old Covenant. But catch this. We live not in the time of the Old Covenant. No. We are those of the New Covenant. For Christ has come. Please catch this because nothing else on this first point. All of material blessings found in the Old Covenant have been crucified, are now found in Christ. That's the point. All we just read, the sterling material blessing, pointed to the ultimate blessing found in Christ, who is now our treasure. For us as Christians, for us who live on the other side of the cross as New Testament, New Covenant, just say, believers. This is where those who adhere to the prosperity doctrine miss it. And I don't want you to miss it. That's in your head. 
but functionally as well. I don't want you to miss this point. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? That all this wealth has fulfillment in Christ. It's true the temple, right? We've been studying that in Scripture, John 2, right? The temple, the old covenant, was fulfilled in Him. In Christ. How about the Sabbath rest? Fulfilled in Christ. You write that in Hebrews 4 to that. Sabbath rest. The temple of John 2. How about as well? The promise of land. No testament. That too was fulfilled in Christ. You can write down to land. It's your land. Hebrews 11.10. So did the material blessings point and find ultimate fulfillment in Christ. The question is, do you see it? And do you believe it? Do you really believe it? That's one thing to say. Yeah, it sounds good. I'm doing it. I'm following you, Corey. Good theology, man. Yeah, but do you really believe it? Your treasures are found in Christ. Not in your paycheck. Not in your stock. Not in your house. Not in your assets. Oh, no. It's much better than that. You're much richer than that. It's found in Christ and His kingdom. His kingdom come. Love this quote. I believe it's in your notes from Randy Alcorn. The material blessings promised to Old Testament saints are to remind us of our future heavenly blessings, but are never to replace them. The new covenant brings not the temporal inheritance promised Israel, but an eternal inheritance. But an eternal inheritance. Oh, our inheritance and riches are so much greater than the physical material wealth of those the old covenant, my friends. It is superior in all ways. And that eternal inheritance is Christ in his kingdom. All the material blessings that we talked about foreshadow or a taste of what we are to experience now in Christ. All the blessings, all the wealth that we read about when we read about King Solomon. Oh, the story of King Solomon is just not a moral story. Oh, the genie comes up to you and asks you, what is your wish? Wish for wisdom! You'll get that and all the money as well. It's not just a moral story. It's not a moral story about a man who asked for wisdom and got blessed. No, the blessing of Abraham, excuse me, of King Solomon points to the wealth of a greater king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point of Solomon's wealth. And he had much of it as well, did he not? I was just reading this the other day. I had to share this. This is uh, uh, 1 Kings 10.5. Speaks when Queen Sheba sees with her own eyes the wealth of Solomon. She says, there was, the word says, there was no breath in her. It goes on to say, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon, this is the one year, was 666 talents of gold. Do a little math here. That's 50,000 pounds a year of gold. Do a little more research. Gold today sells for $13,000 a pound, roughly. So in one year, Solomon received $650 million in gold alone. And it says the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. My friends, that's wealth. But don't be impressed with that wealth. That wealth is pointing to our wealth. Found in the king, the king from King David, the king Solomon, the king of kings. It was a show, I believe, how valuable Christ is and that he is worth everything. He is worth everything. Isn't that what Christ said when he walked this earth? 
He says, yeah, I am worth everything. My kingdom is worth everything. Everything that you got. I was worth everything that you possess and own. Matthew 13, 44. Christ says this. The kingdom of heaven, that's Christ's kingdom, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all, all that he has, and he buys that field. Because the kingdom of God and Christ is more valuable than all that he possesses. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in a little different words when he said in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dumb, as garbage. In order that I gain Christ. Yeah, Paul was talking about his education, his pedigree, but not just that. He said, everything. I count everything, all that I own, all that I possess, as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Paul got it. He got it. Do you got it? Do you see it? Do you believe it? Christ is your reward. This will make a difference in all that we're going to talk about in the weeks ahead about how we manage our finances. All that we possess are money, possessions. They're pale, poor, dim pointers to the treasure we have in Christ. Christ who cleansed us. Christ who saved us. And Christ who would lavish his riches upon us in his new kingdom and new worth. You may say, Corey, I, I want to believe that. That sounds great. But where do you see that in scripture, this idea that material blessings aren't a part of the covenant? The reality is this. Christ never repeats or affirms a walk on this earth that the material blessings are primary or to be a part of the new covenant. He is curiously absent and silent regarding this. And so is the Apostle Paul in the epistles that follow. Quoting your note from Craig Bloomberg, the covenant model that assumes material reward for piety, that is, that old covenant model that assumes material reward for obedience never reappears in Jesus' teaching and is explicitly contradicted throughout. In fact, Christ is quite the opposite. He doesn't affirm material blessing. He actually affirms many times poverty and adversity. In fact, you could say that Christ did not preach a prosperity doctrine. Christ preached an adversity doctrine. Then want us to be rich. Then want us to be and to live like the king's kid would have not been the king's kid himself. That is Christ. How did the king's kid live on earth? Well, he was born in a lowly manger into a poor family. He was the one who said in Matthew 8 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. The king's kid, that is Christ, had no home. The king's kid died penniless on a cross. And he said these words in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Love this quote as well from Randy Alcorn. Jesus warned his disciples not to follow a lordship model but his own servant model. In his life, we are to share in his cross, 
in the next life, we will share in His crown. That's good. Friends, church, the reality is, so often we want the crown now, don't we? We want it now. Or we feel that we ought to, at least as affluent American Christians. But you know what? It was a different in Christ's day. It was a different in Paul's day as well. When Paul's addressing the church of Corinth, he's addressing what they call the super apostles, the men who had arrived. He says this about the super apostles in the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, we have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Uh, how we can fall prey to this thinking as well. Lord, give me the crown now. I've arrived. Give me my blessing. Give me my material blessing. I want to reign and rule now. The Old Testament riches are found in Christ. It will ultimately experience when we reign with Christ. Yes, in heaven, in the new earth. But to expect, to claim, or to demand them now is dangerous. It's not the goal. And I believe it's simple thinking as well. You see, to look back at the Old Testament and to claim material blessings is the prosperity gospel. It is a false gospel. But so it is to look into the future to our home in heaven and reign with Christ and claim those blessings for us today. That is called an over-realized eschatology. Big phrase there. Talked about it, I think it weighs back when we went through the first Corinthians. Over-realized eschatology. Eschatology has to do with the end times. We're taking the end times and the reign of the Christ. We're saying we want it now. We're bringing it into the, into the now. That too is a false gospel. Where does that leave us? This is where it leads, leads us today. It leads us enjoying Christ for who He is. Looking forward to the riches that await us in heaven. But looking forward to the riches with content hearts. Contentment in our financial dealings. Oh, why? Because our real treasure is not found on earth. And earth is not our home. Earth is not our home. And that leads to our second point. These will be a little quicker. We really want to establish that first one in our mind, in our hearts. Our home is not on this earth, but in heaven. Another quote here. Alcorn, I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to our giving is this. The illusion that earth is our home. The illusion that earth is our home. Oh, how our financial management would be altered if we truly believed that heaven and not earth is our home. This past month, actually it was in April, uh, the two, the men of the two Broward Home Group uh, went on a, their annual camping trip. I had the privilege of joining them for the camping trip. Raphael was there. And uh, so was Jesus there, our cook. And we packed in and went to Peace River on the Gulf Coast of Florida. And it was a fun trip. Do you know what? It affected how we packed as well. You see, we, what we had to do the first day was take an eight-mile canoe trip down the Peace River. The plan was eight miles the first day, 
camped out on the riverbank. The next morning, get up and commit another four miles back down to our base. But believe me, knowing the fact that I had to carry everything in my canoe affected the way I packed the night before. I weighed everything carefully, everything that I was going to bring, just enough that I needed for that night. It affected the way we packed, what we brought with us. It affected the food that we brought as well. Craisins, right? I see man. That's right, salmon. Everybody. It affected us. You see, Peace River wasn't our home. It was just a journey. Two days, one night. We weren't moving there. We weren't settling in to Peace River. We were there to enjoy our time. But we also knew the next morning when the sun rose, we had to pack up quickly and get out of there. And I didn't want to be weighed down. No, I want my canoe to weigh down. For I was moving on to better pastures. It was simply a journey. If we truly believe that earth is not our home, but heaven's our home, it's going to affect how we live here on earth. We read in Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Earth is not our home, friends. Heaven is our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We read in Philippians 3.20, once again, I know I'm cruising through these verses. I just want you to have them down. I want you to hear them with your own ears. You can go back and look at them again. Philippians 3.20 But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says we are aliens, strangers, pilgrims on this earth. Hebrews 11.13 says this. These, that is the men of faith in this great hall of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews, they have died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We are as well, strangers and exiles. We are pilgrims. And we're also a holy priesthood that has no earthly inheritance. Do you know in the Old Testament the Levites had no earthly inheritance? The 12 tribes had inheritance, but not the Levites, not the priests. They had no earthly inheritance. We read in Deuteronomy 18.1. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. Oh yeah, the Levites had an inheritance, but it wasn't earthly. The Lord was an inheritance. I want to connect the dots now. That is the political priesthood, the priest in the Old Covenant. Well, friends, we are the priests, the holy priesthood in the New Covenant. And our inheritance is the Lord. It is heaven. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God, the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance, inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is our inheritance as a holy priesthood. Undefiled, unfading, imperishable inheritance. That's good news. You want to know why? This earth is fading away. It's passing away. We've been talking talking about this in our singles this last year. Going through the series, Do Not Love the World. And our theme verse is 1 John 2.15. And it starts this way. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And then it ends with verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world's passing away. We are pilgrims and it's passing away. Our inheritance is not here. It's in Christ. It's with Him in heaven. To live as if earth is your home is to have what John Owen, great Puritan, called living affections to dying things. That's good. It's not good. Well put, though. Living affections for dying things. That describes those who live as if earth is their home. So how much of your expenditures or investments are in dying things? What does your credit card say? What does your budget say? Have you cleaned out your garage or your attic lately? What does that say? Oh, I still keep in my desk drawer one particular electronic useless device. It's called a Sharp Zaurus. It was the forerunner to the PDAs, to the Palm Pilots, about 14 years ago. Go. Cost me almost $600. I mean, it had a stylus you could write on the screen. It was pretty cool. You could even see it with your computer. You had to program it for 20 minutes. <laughs> it hardwired to the computer, and it still didn't sink half the time. But it was cool. It was cutting edge. And in six months, it was obsolete. I've kept that as a reminder <laughs> of the fading, perishable things of this earth. I need that. For us guys, often is electronic items. I think it's sporting equipment, or whatever it may be. For women, it can often be clothing or things you purchase for interior design. Things that are fading. Things that will pass away, as this earth will as well. To live as if earth is your home is to dig broken cisterns that can't hold water, that can't hold your possessions. Jeremiah 2. Oh, how many broken cisterns have you built with your money? That which you invested in, if I would bring you the joy and the satisfaction that it promised. Oh, it could be so many things, can I? We'll talk about that more in our budgeting course class. It could be just costly entertainments. Once again, none of these things are wrong in of themselves. But if you're looking to those things, that joy, that satisfaction, you know as well as I do, they're passing, they're fleeting. Some of us, it's entertainment. For some of us, it's indulgent eating. It's that dreaded restaurant budget that you blow every month. Some of us, it's that elaborate vacation. Some of us, it's meadows. It's that granddaddy insurance policy. I promise you peace. No matter what happens, you're safe and secure. Or so you feel that way. Oh, it's all passing. It's fleeting. 
Not only is not only is this earth passing away, I can get better news. So are you. <laughs> As well, so are you. Oh. And one day we're gonna meet our maker. When we do pass away. If he doesn't return beforehand. And we're gonna be held accountable to our maker. At least to the third point. We are stewards, not owners of God's possessions. What is a steward? According to your definition there, a steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property. That would be God's wealth or property in our case. And charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. You see, to operate under the illusion that we are owners of that which we possess is foolhardy and destructive. We just recently watched the last of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King. And this one scene is still emblazoned on my mind. It's that of Denethor, the steward of Gondor. For those who haven't seen the movie or haven't seen it for a while, Gondor is a fictional kingdom of Middle-earth. Gondor is the realm of men. And there has been a line, a succession of stewards in Gondor over many, many years and centuries that are awaiting the king's return. And in the movie, we meet the last of the stewards, Denethor II, who was the steward of Gondor. But as the years progressed, these stewards' hearts had become hardened in the kingdom of man, hardened against the king's return. And there's one scene, if you recall, if you've seen the movie, when Denethor sends out his hapless troops to fight the enemies, the troops of Sauron. He sends them out, and he's sitting there on his throne, eating vegetables and lobster and seafood and fruit. And that scene is alternated or juxtaposed with his troops who are going out to slaughter. And here Denethor doesn't care a bit. His heart is cold and calloused. He has given up hope. He has forgotten his role as steward of Gondor. And his fate is doomed. Oh, when Christ returns, what will he find us on our pretend throne, munching away in the finest of delicacies, not entering the battle, forgetting who we are, the possessions that we steward. They don't belong to us, they are God's. And we, one day, will be called to account. Called to account. Why? Because the king is returning. And he owns it all. He owns it all. I don't have time to throw all the verses here. I'll just state two of them here. There's quite a few new notes. Just to show you that this is a theme throughout Scripture that God indeed owns it all. Deuteronomy 10 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. We read in Psalm 50 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. All that we possess belongs to him. Oh, how free it is to embrace this truth. God is the owner. He's the owner. And he can do whatever he likes with all that he's given us, because it belongs to him. I love the story of John Wesley told by Randy Alcorn. You've probably heard of Pelvis before. Quote, 
A distraught man fiercely rode his horse up to John Wesley, shouting, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. Weighing the news for a moment, Wesley replied, No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. Wesley got it. Now, do we get it? How freeing it is. God owns it. Yes, we're stewards of it, but God can do as he likes. I have right here the title of my new car. It's my parents' old car. Just got the title last week. It's up there, 1997 Honda Accord. It says the certificate of title. Has the year, the make. It says registered owner. Corey Lee Smidgen. That's the seat. God owns this car. Yes, legally, I own it now. No, no, no. God owns this car. And that's going to make a difference. How I treat it. How I drive it. As well. Oh, we should forget that point so easily. Is that your mentality? With, quote, unquote, your house? Or your possessions? Who owns it? We're reading the parable of the ten minutes. Luke 19. We're getting near the end here. Let's look at this scripture, actually. This will serve as we approach the conclusion here. But I want you to hear these words directly. A couple more minutes. Luke 19. A wonderful, yet hard parable as well. Luke 19, starting with verse 11. Start with verse 12. Christ speaking. He said, therefore, another man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave him ten minutes and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But the citizens hated him, and he sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minute has made ten minutes more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept, laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the manna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minutes. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, he did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, and slaughter them before me.
The servants of the king, the stewards, were judged according to how they invested God's possessions and resources. And they're also rewarded as well. In this parable, we see its varying positions of authority in heaven. So much more I can say here, but hear this. The goal isn't really to conserve, but to multiply what God has given us, to invest. The truth is that we will be judged on how we handle God's possessions, His money, how we spend and invest His financial assets. Oh God, He is severe, but He's also merciful. And I do want to end with that point. He can be severe, but he is merciful. And I realize a talk like this, you may be hurting a little bit, a few ouches there along the way. That's good. It is a conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's also hope. To go back to the beginning, Christ our treasure. He's also our righteousness. It's his perfect righteousness. It's Christ's perfect obedience on your behalf that is now credited, imputed to you. You realize that Christ passed every temptation that you have failed. It's interesting to know that when Christ was tempted in the wilderness three times by Satan, each one of those temptations at varying degrees had to do with material possessions. In Christ passed the test. But he passed it for you and passed it for me the very point we have failed in this area of financial stewardship. The clearest temptation, I believe, material temptation, was the temptation to turn the stone into bread. The Christ quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 says this, But he answered, that's Christ. It is written, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. No matter how bad you felt in this area of finances, in this stage of your life, up to this point, no matter how much you sought after and bought stone, Christ tonight is your forgiveness, but he's also your righteousness, because he has passed the test where we have failed. So tonight there may be some business you need to do with the Lord. There is a confession, a repenting of the sin where you have unwisely stewarded or managed God's finances. When you have lost sight of the three legs of the stool, you have imbibed the thinking of this world, that the earth is your home, that the earth is where your treasure lies, but that somehow you are owners and not stewards. This should be an opportunity to stand upon that stool, to stand up, to stand for Christ, and to say, I believe, Christ, that you are my treasure, and I believe that heaven is my home, and I believe that you are the owner, and I'm just a steward. And Bill, say with ten hearts. Amen. Amen. Let us close there. It has been a lot of content, I realize. 
a lot of things to digest. I'm giving you a lot on purpose. I don't know if you need to, to digest it all. That's the nature of a theology class. I'm going to give a lot. I'm going to give you a lot of notes as well. But I have them, them for you to set it as a resource for you. I do want to spend a few moments. We're going to end at 9 o'clock every evening. So we have about 10 minutes. If you have any questions, this would be a great time. I want to have a QA and a at the end of every session. So if you have any questions tonight about what you just heard, this would be the time. We have a few moments reserved for that. So any questions, comments, questions? Any area that might not have been clear to you? Perhaps you're still struggling with either understanding or perhaps applying. Yes, Don. Um, in the beginning, when you reiterated that the Old Testament has material blessings relating to obedience, and that's completely filled with Christ in the New Testament, would you then not believe that God blesses materially the obedience today? Not in the same way. The nature has changed. The question is. If in the Old Testament, the New Covenant, Old Covenant, God blessed materially obedience, does, does he then not do that in the New Testament? I think there are passages, I'll give you a few, that do show that God does give money to those who steward money well. But the nature's changed, both in how true wealth is defined. So I'm defining true wealth differently now. It's not simply materially speaking, it's in Christ. I believe he does give money in trust to those who are faithful, but he does it for the purpose of giving it away and investing it in his kingdom as well. So I would never say, if you got some money, that God simply gave you money that you did not count on, or that somehow your business was successful. That, that wasn't God. That wasn't God. It can't be God. No, I believe it can be God. We have to be careful there. Is it simply a reward for obedience? I would not necessarily say that directly. I would say it can be a blessing from God. But once again, that is not your true open blessings of a new believer in Christ. What about with the verse about testing in this? Um, people like to find out pour into their life. And he's talking about trusting him with your money. Right, right. Being obedient in the tithe and the offering. Sure. And then he says, testing in this and see that I won't multiply. I mean, I, I understand that it's, we don't believe in obedience just to get blessings. Right. But that right. mentality is lost. Sure, sure. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. of sowing and reaping that does make effect that's still in effect in the New Testament as well. I think God does bless those. He can financially those who are good stewards of their money. I think he does it for the purpose, as I said, of investing and giving it away. So I would, I would not say that there's no way he doesn't bless you for giving you money. But once again, I want to be careful here to make that direct correlation. 
I've been blessed. I'm, because I've got money, I've therefore been obedient. Or, you know, therefore making that equation. You know, blessing equals money. Blessing equals um, obedience. Financially, it is. You need to be careful. But yeah, let's, let's look at, there's a few verses here. Uh, verses 6, 38 comes to mind here. Um, it says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So there isn't to be a law of giving as you invest and give, that God gives you more for the purpose of giving away. But once again, I'm talking tonight more about the fundamental nature of blessing and wealth, okay? But I do believe there is laws so that we can take, take effect as it comes to our giving, our charity, our generosity. That's certainly I don't want to deny. I don't want to actually to preach. I think so. I think in the terms of giving, yes, and stewardship. But once again, I think, yeah, I'm framing a larger picture here of, once again, the nature of wealth and of the nature of true blessing in the new covenant. Without denying the fact that God can indeed give you money. And I want to thank God if you do get money. I'm not saying you can't thank God for it, okay? But be careful that you think it's because of your obedience or you're more spiritually mature, etc. I think that's the difference. Yeah, right. What, what scripture? That was uh, verse 6.38. Good questions. Yes, Eddie. On, on that same aspect, the receiving of money, we ultimately got to remember that it's to give back glory. Yes. So however we get it, that's where it's for. Right. I got a question on um, one of the earlier verses back when we started you um, read the scripture and it said um, that's right come back to it Eddie sorry good great anyone else hasn't shared any other questions Yes, no, no. Do you think us, as believers and Christians, it is bad to have an ambition to have a niche financially as we're taking all these courses, like, you know, to, to be able to be financially free for uh, the religious benefit? So the question was, is it wrong to want to have the financial pressure or tension eased in your the life? Goal, the goal, ambition, huh? the desire to be financially free, to be able to enjoy the life that we have here. Yeah, I, th I think I want you to become that. And hopefully our course will help towards that path of financial freedom where those who may have been poor stewards or in debt, I don't want you to get out of debt and not be constrained. But I don't want it for the purpose, not simply of your own affluence, but simply you're free now to invest and give God's money as you choose as opposed to being hindered by that because you're in shackles, because you have debt payments, credit card debts, and other debts you're paying off. You're simply not free to respond to invest the money inside of the Lord of wine and invest it as we build in the scripture. So yes, I want absolutely financial freedom for the purpose of investing money as good stewards, not to the creditors or whatever it may be. So I'm saying yes and amen to that. And I hopefully this course will help you get there as well. Great question. Yeah, anything. Okay, go for it. 
Last question. In the, in the Old Testament verse, it talks about um, uh, not not being in debt when you first start out. You're talking about um, you're, you're to be blessed, and Israel will be blessed, and you will be in debt to no one. How's that? Mm -hmm. All right. Now, does that, in the way that scripture reads, are they talking about that not to do that, or because of what God will give them, they will not be in debt? Yeah, he, I think in that scripture they're talking about debt is servitude and one of the marks of the blessing upon his people they will not be in debt to anyone they will not be anyone's servant that God will bless them financially they will be lenders but not borrowers they will be masters not servants and that would be a sign of God's blessing and favor upon them upon Israel should they fear him and follow his ways and that's the statement they're trying to make there yeah Great. Wonderful. Good question. And I'm sure there's many more. We're going to have more opportunity to explore these topics in a little more detail in the weeks to come. So thank you for being here. It is 9 o'clock. You are released. All right.